Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, by your Spirit, please grant power to the preaching of your Word and grant us all that we need to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding the passage before us this evening. I am weak and needy, and I am in need of your help. I need you to attend to me as I do this work to which you've called me, so I pray that that would be so. Grant me grace. Fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you and your church. Um, And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to start tonight with a hypothetical situation, okay? Um, Let's just say that you arrived tonight dealing with some sort of problem or problems. Maybe one, maybe maybe more. Uh, They could be relational, they could be financial, they could be employment problems, they could be physical problems, they could be mental health problems of some kind, Uh, they could be dependency issues. There could be problems with your marriage. There could be problems with between you and your children. There could be problems with extended family members. There could be problems with neighbors. There could be problems with employers or coworkers in the office. They could, you, you could just be physically tired, maybe emotionally weary. You could be sad. You could be grieving. You could be anxious or depressed or lonely or frustrated, maybe angry, bitter, resentful, disappointed. You might be discouraged, confused, maybe afraid. You could be facing some sort of pushback because of your faith. Now, If that were true, and you were encountering some sort of problem tonight as you came in, would you want me in the next few minutes to tell you that your hope is found within you? Would you want me to tell you that your hope is is found in your circumstances? Would you, and, and whether or not, you know, the thing, the, the problem that you're experiencing resolves or not. Would you want me to spend time and, and tell you that your hope is, will be found or it will be based upon whether or not you can make some sort of atti- attitude change? I hope not. I hope you wouldn't want me to do that because that would be a dead faith. It would leave you disappointed. Because what we need, we we don't need a dead faith, we need a living faith. We need a living faith. And so what I want to tell you tonight is that your hope is not in yourself. It is not in your circumstances. Your hope is in the grace of God. As a matter of fact, the grace of God is your only hope. It is my only hope. And the good news just gets better because the reality is that grace is yours. The grace is yours. 
And I've been waiting two weeks to do this tonight. So I may seem a little giddy. You probably could tell it from the call to worship. But I'm giddy because I want us to not just consider five things. I want us to revel in five things tonight. I want us to relish and delight in five things. I want us to revel and relish in the hope that we have, the hope that is ours through the resurrection. Um, I want us to revel in the fact that we're guarded by power. I want us to delight in the fact that we experience joy in trials. I want us to delight in the fact that we have faith in Christ. And finally, I want us to revel in the fact that all of that All of that good news has been proclaimed to us through preaching. We need to briefly recap, okay, before we do. We need to remember that Peter wrote this letter to Christians who were were in five provinces that we now know as modern-day Turkey, and within those provinces, Christians were experiencing um, a wide variety and a fast-growing amount of of trials simply for being followers of the Lord Jesus. And Peter was writing to them in order to encourage them, to lift them up, to encourage them in the midst of the trials that they were facing, in the midst of the suffering they were experiencing, trials and suffering that he himself may have also been experiencing at the time. And he began this letter, notice he doesn't commiserate with them. He doesn't begin the letter trying to convince them that they're overcomers. He doesn't try to encourage them to replace their negative talk with positive thinking. And he doesn't even, he doesn't even express sympathy or empathy because of their circumstances. He breaks into doxology. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He he didn't waste any time getting their eyes up off of their circumstances. And who in here doesn't need to get our eyes lifted up off of our circumstances tonight? Eyes lifted off of our circumstances and on to the Lord. Peter knew firsthand what what it was like to break down in the midst of trial, in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of, of... of trouble, but he also was first in line to understand the importance of regrouping, of getting a proper perspective regarding his circumstances. And he helped his original readers by breaking out into a blessing of praise. And it was a praise simply because of who God was and is and all that he had done. And it's my hope that the same would be said of us tonight. As we walk through this passage, as we we learn and, and come to hopefully a greater understanding of the grace that is already ours, that we would not bask in what we um in what we've come to know, and we wouldn't boast in what we strive to do, but that we too would break into boisterous praise along with Peter, 
and say, blessed be our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because He is worthy of that praise, as we are about to see. The question is why, right? Why did He break into the praise? And why do we need to break into blessings and praise? Look at verse 3. He says that we have hope, and our hope is ours through the resurrection. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. So not only does He get our eyes up off our circumstances, He also gets our eyes up off of ourselves, particularly in light of our salvation. As I mentioned throughout our study of Genesis, God is a God of gratuitous mercy. And Peter says that one of the outcomes of that gratuitous mercy is that He has caused us to be born again. Out of His abundant mercy, and based solely upon His love that He set upon us and the kind intention of His will, He not only chose to save us, but He was the only active participant in our salvation. There was nothing we could do in and of ourselves to change, um, to change that which was necessary. We didn't cause ourselves to be born again. He caused us to be born again. We didn't contribute anything to it. You've heard me say this before. We didn't contribute anything to our salvation other than our sin and misery. And the language of being born again and God being the sole agent of that work was not language that Peter himself came up with. Remember, Peter had been with Jesus. And listen to Christ's own words in John chapter 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the bottom line is we were helpless, we were hopeless, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We only deserve judgment and wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, did more than just withhold what we deserved. He gave us new life. He rebirthed us. And again, just as we, and He did so by the Spirit. And again, as we learned in Genesis, that same spirit who was at work at creation was the, the one who was at work in our recreation. Just as God breathed life into Adam, He has breathed life into us. He's been, breathed spiritual life into us. We were living in darkness, we're now living in the light. Due to our sin, our lives were in chaos, and He's brought order and he salvaged us. He set us free from our sin. Our lives were empty and void, but he's given us purpose. And we're in the process of being sanctified and filled with all the fullness of Christ. God is our creator and redeemer. He's our Lord and Savior. And he's our Father because he has rebirthed us. He has given us new life. And notice that Peter says that we've been born again to a living hope. And this is more than a hope that those in the world have. It's nothing more than wishful thinking. 
Their hope is temporary, it's uncertain, it's undependable and inconsistent. It's an empty hope, it's a dead hope, as I've already said. But the hope which Peter speaks is a living hope. And it's a living hope because the source is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Christ, who was crucified and died, as we just read in Isaiah 52 and 53, because he died, or he who died, because he was raised from the dead and is now living and has ascended and is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, those who, who are born again are given life because they are united to the one who is the source of life. This isn't something that's merely theoretical. This is actual life, which means there's actual hope. It's a hope that will endure because it's a hope that's eternal and will never end. And it's a hope that will is eternal and will never end because it's a hope in a life that's eternal and will never end. And it's a life that's eternal and will, and will never end because the source is eternal and will never end. Karen Jobes puts it this way. She said, Christian hope is ever-living because Christ, the ground of that hope, is ever-living. The present reality of the Christian's life is defined and determined by the reality of an event that has already happened, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and is guaranteed into the future because Christ lives forevermore. But we've not only been reborn to a living hope, we've also been reborn to an inheritance. Verse 4 says it's an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you and for me. And that word inheritance, again, should take us back to Genesis, should make us think of the land promise. If you remember, we heard over and over and over again that the patriarchs were looking beyond the physical land. They were looking to that to which it pointed. They were looking to the eternal spiritual home. And Peter is looking forward to that same inheritance, and he's pointing his readers to that same inheritance. He wants them to look forward to that same inheritance, though now they be weary. And Peter says that that spiritual uh, spiritual inheritance of the new heavens and new earth will never spoil, it will never rot, it will never deteriorate, it will never be unclean, polluted, or contaminated, it won't be impure, it will never disappear, and it will never vanish. It's indestructible. And brothers and sisters, we've been born again to a living hope of a salvation that was secured for us by a resurrected Lord and Christ who ascended into heaven and was seated again at the right hand of God the Father Almighty where He rules and reigns in power and in glory. And we have a living hope that because we've been united to Him by faith, that we've already been resurrected spiritually, from spiritual death to spiritual life. And in Paul's words, we've been raised up with him and seated in heavenly places. But we've also have a living hope of our future 
physical resurrection, when the Lord Jesus returns and comes to judge the living and the dead. That means we will not only inherit an indestructible life, we will not only inherit an indestructible heavens and earth, but we will inherit the Lord Jesus. We will be with Him. We will see Him. And we will see Him and be with Him forever. That is the hope of the resurrection that is yours and mine. But that's not all. We are also guarded by power. See, our inheritance is not only indestructible, it's also, it can't be lost. And we can say that with confidence, and we can say that with confidence because of verse 4. He says, we have the ability to keep it. Right? We, we have the ability to keep this inheritance, not because of anything in us, but because God is keeping it in heaven for us. Our inheritance is certain because God is the one who's preserving it. He's keeping it from perishing. He's keeping it from being defiled. He's keeping it from fading. And the good news doesn't stop there. Not only is our, our inheritance being preserved, but we ourselves are being preserved. Verse 5 says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's saying God is not only keeping and preserving our inheritance, He's keeping and preserving us. He's guarding us. Nothing less than His power, the same power that that rose the, uh, the Lord Jesus from the dead, is what is keeping us safe. He's keeping us secure. He's guarding us. He is our armed guard. And He's not only protecting us from the onslaught of Satan, He's protecting us from the world. He's even protecting us from ourselves and our flesh that is waging war against us. He's holding us tight. He's holding us tight to keep us from giving up. And he does that by strengthening our faith, which is the conduit through which we are saved. Our salvation is sure, and our inheritance is secure, not because we are powerful enough to keep ourselves in the faith. Our salvation is is secure. Our salvation is sure, our inheritance is secure because God and God alone is powerful enough to keep us in the faith. The bottom line is God not only rebirthed us and created faith within us, but He is now at work strengthening that faith and nurturing that faith that is within us. And as He does so, He preserves us, and as He preserves us, we are enabled to persevere. So the reality is the consummation And the fullness of our salvation that is already ours has been prepared and is ready and waiting for us. And until that day, He's preserving us. Until the appointed time when we'll take full possession of it. The goal is for us to receive the inheritance and enjoy it 
in its fullness as He intended. David Strain puts it this way, and I wish I could, I wish I had his accent. He said, God is the guarantor of our hope, the substance of our inheritance, and He is Himself guarding and keeping us, preserving us till the full reality of that inheritance is ours, not only in promise, but at last in possession. No wonder Peter sings, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have hope in the resurrection. We're being guarded by power. But Peter says we also experience joy in trials. And again, I'm not talking about something that's in the abstract or that which is merely theoretical. Everything to this point directly affects how we should live in the day-to-day. What we believe about the future has a direct impact on how we live in the present. Let me say that again. What we believe about the future has a direct impact on how we live in the present. You see, everything Peter said between verses 3 to 5 was worthy of rejoicing over. But notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, in this you would rejoice were it not for the fact that you are exiles in the midst of a world that is growing increasingly hostile toward you. He also didn't say, in this you will rejoice once your trials are over. He said, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You see, for those with a living hope, rejoicing and grieving are not mutually exclusive. It is possible to rejoice in the midst of trials and sufferings. And notice I said in the midst of and not for. Because Peter doesn't say for. He says in the midst of. Peter is not saying that we rejoice for and celebrate our trials. He's not not downplaying the difficulty. He's not downplaying the suffering. He's not downplaying the pain we experience. What he is, though, he is saying that we are able to jump up and down in triumph in the midst of those things because they're only temporary. And our salvation and our hope are eternal. And he also says that they're not only, not only can we rejoice because they're temporary, but we can also rejoice in the midst of them because they're necessary. And they're necessary because they have a purpose. Verse 7, he says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We need to be very, very clear. The Lord doesn't test us to see if we have faith. The Lord doesn't test us to see how strong our faith is. He doesn't test us to see how inadequate our faith is. And He doesn't test us to the the point of, of failure. He tests our faith in order to strengthen it. 
Each trial, each difficulty is a means by which the Lord heats our faith like a precious metal in a furnace in order to bring the impurities or those things not in faith to the top so that he can skim them off. And as he skims off those impurities, our faith is made even stronger than it was before. And as our, as our faith grows, it assures us that it is imperishable and therefore more precious than gold. Because gold is going to burn up. And this purpose behind the trials and sufferings tells us that every trial, every difficulty, everything that, that we suffer, none of it is meaningless. None of it is random. None of it is trivial. Every sorrow, every grief, every tear matters. And to each and every occasion, each and every circumstance is meant to drive us to Christ because it is there in Him that our hope and joy are found. And what's the result? Peter says, we will receive praise, glory, and honor when He returns. And again, His mercy is on full display. Because why do we receive praise, glory, and honor? Not for anything that we've done, but for what He has done for us and in us. And as my dear friend Chris Miller says, God will rejoice over us for something He has done for us from beginning to end. So we have hope in the resurrection. We're being guarded by power, we experience joy in trial, in trials, and in verses 8 and 9, he says we have faith in Christ. And here he makes another comment regarding rejoicing over that which he had said in verses 3 to 5. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your, your faith, the salvation of your souls. So not only are they rejoicing, but they're rejoicing with joy that, that they can't even find the words to fully or ad, ad, adequately express or describe. And they're doing so, in, doing so in spite of the fact that they've never seen Him. Right? They, they believe in Him, they love Him, but they've never seen Him, which is evidence of the fact that they've been given that gift of faith. They believed because the faith that they had been given as a gift had enabled them to, to understand that, and believe that the future was present and the unseen was visible. They were enjoying the salvation that was theirs in the present and had a living, living hope for the fullness and consummation of their salvation to come. And as a result, they had this overabundance of inexpressible joy. But notice, Peter's stressing something very, very important here. Notice, he says that faith is the instrument of our salvation, and Christ is the object of that faith. Faith does not save. It is Christ who saves. And our faith looks to Christ. 
So like his original readers, we've never seen him, but we love him. We believe in him. We've never seen him, but through faith we've been united to him by the Spirit. We've never seen him. We don't see him. But he reveals himself to us by the Spirit through word and sacrament. We don't see him, but he indwells us by the Spirit. And we can be sure that he will complete what he has begun. Right? The faith that he has created within us. We will experience the outcome of our faith that we were given at our new birth, which is the salvation of our souls. Should we not, too, rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible? Should we, too, not have, or should we, too, have an overabundance of inexpressible joy? Hope in the resurrection, guarded by power, joy in trials, faith in Christ. And then finally, all this good news comes through preaching. Concerning the salvation, he writes, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the, the, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The salvation that is yours and that is mine in Christ that is both already and not yet is not simply a New Testament concept. The grace that's ours was prophesied about and pointed to by Spirit-inspired prophets in the Old Testament. And they didn't simply prophesy and move on. They didn't make a prophecy and then move on to the next thing or the next topic. Peter says they wanted to know more about the, re the realities of that which they prophesied. They wanted to know more. They wanted to know when all that they had spoken about was going to take place. They had prophesied about the Messiah and His suffering, and they wanted to know more about the fulfillment of that. They had spoken and longed, they, had, they longed to see the outcome of what they had spoken of. But Peter says, ultimately, they understood those things weren't for them to know. Because the Spirit had told them their ministry was for those to come, not for themselves, for themselves. And of course, Peter and the other Spirit-inspired apostles were those to come, right? They bore witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. They bore witness through their preaching and their writing. He was the one to whom the prophets pointed. He was the one that even angels were longing to see. He was the one who was the central figure and focus and focal point of redemptive history. And brothers and sisters, we have been blessed beyond what we could ever ask or imagine or beyond 
more than we even realize because we too are numbered among those to come. We're more privileged than the prophets because we're on this side of the cross. We have a post-cross perspective of redemption that they didn't have. We're more privileged than angels. We're more privileged than angels because we are participants in redemption. We are objects of His grace. We're beneficiaries of His grace. The angels can only look on and wonder what it's like to be the object of grace. The prophet's ministry was for us. The apostle's ministry was for us. We are objects of Christ's redemption, and we have come to the knowledge of the truth through the ministry of the Spirit and the Word that has been preached to us. In Paul's words, it pleased God through the folly or foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. And preaching isn't something that we just need to come to faith. Preaching is something we need to grow in faith. Preaching is more important than any book written by some old dead guy. Preaching is more important than any podcast you might listen to. And it's not something we should ever neglect. In the words of the larger catechism, the Spirit makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, to be an effectual or successful means of conforming us into Christ's image and subduing us to His will, of strengthening us against temptation and corruptions, of building us up in grace and establishing our hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Beloved, no matter what your circumstances might be, now or in the future, no matter what you may be going through, no matter what trial you are in or what may come your way, I implore you to hold fast to the hope and security and joy and faith and good news of the gospel that you've heard through preaching. You have hope through the resurrection. You're being guarded by power. You can experience joy in trials. You have faith in Christ. And He has blessed you with the preaching of His Word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, by Your Spirit and grace, would You enable us to receive the Word with faith and love? meekness, and readiness of mind, may we meditate on it, hide it in our hearts, and bring forth the fruit of it in our lives. For your glory, and for our good, and for the sake of Christ and His church, amen.